Good morning, everyone. My name is Brie Henderson, and I am filming this from my home, and I'm happy to be here to read the scripture for us this morning. So this morning, I am reading Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28, if you want to follow along in your own Bibles. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this, a new teaching? And with authority, he even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much that you are with us and that you continue to work in our lives. Um, God, we ask that... Um, you would just give Cameron wisdom and help him to unpack the scripture for us with clarity and with truth. Um, we ask that you would be with us in our communities and in our homes this week. And we just love you so much. And we're thankful for the work that you um, have always been doing and that you're going to continue to do, um, especially as we look forward to Easter Father, we're just so thankful for your continued presence and faithfulness in our lives. In your name, amen. Hey, Door of Hope Northeast, it's Cameron. Uh, if I don't know you, I'm one of the pastors here. Um, and this is one of those moments I just, uh, more than usual, really wish we were together in person. And uh, if you didn't know, we uh, this is actually our second to last time we're going to be doing this house-to-house -house video format as a... Uh, um, in two Sundays, we'll be uh, having Easter, which will mark our return to weekly in-person gatherings, which we're excited about. But, you know, lamenting together over the screen is, uh, it's a pretty poor substitute for doing it in person. Um, you may have heard the news uh, this week in Atlanta. Uh, there were eight image bearers uh, killed. Um, and uh, it's been increasingly coming up on my radar that this year has just been marked uh, by an increase in violence and sort of racial, racist incidents against Asian Americans. And uh, six six of the victims uh, were, were Asian American women um, in Atlanta. And so this is just another high profile, incredibly tragic event that I know for uh, all kinds of folks across our country uh, makes them fearful and anxious. Um, it adds to that increasing anxiety and question of like, am I safe here in my own country? Um, and so, yeah, we just want to take a, a moment to, to mourn with those who mourn, to weep with those who weep, uh, and, and more than that even, uh, to pray uh, for um, our Asian brothers and sisters uh, and for everyone else, the families of every single person that lost their lives, um, another man who was injured, uh, who knows what other details are going to come out about this thing in the weeks to come. But for now, it feels right and appropriate just to acknowledge uh, and, and to pray. 
And so I, I just want to give, um, I'll give a few seconds, you know, 30 seconds or so um, for us just silently from your own home, if you're watching this, wherever you are, uh, to pray. And then I'll, I'll pray to kind of close the time out. So um, let's pray to God. Well, Father, we, we do mourn, and uh, we pray that you help us continue to mourn and weep uh, over the deaths, the murders of those that you love, Lord, those who bear your image. Um, we know that the loss of any human life for, from murder, Lord, is a deep tragedy that you, that, that, that your heart breaks over. Lord, so we pray just for the families and the friends and the communities of each one of these victims. Um, Lord, we do pray for the shooter, pray for his repentance, um, for, for, for healing, mental, spiritual healing for him. Um, but Lord, we, we also just pray for specifically the Asian American community for whom this is just another tragic incident on top of so many, Lord. Um, we pray for just a peace that surpasses all understanding. We pray for provision, Lord. We pray for a sense of, of protection and safety, um, sense of your presence, Lord. And Lord, somehow uh, we pray that you would glorify yourself in this process. We know that you weep over it but that you can spin even the deepest evil for good. We pray that you would do that. We don't understand how, but we pray that you would. And we pray, Father, that this, every tragedy like this, there's tragedies that happen every day, to, far more than we could even count or acknowledge in this way, Lord. But, but every one of them, Lord, that we do see, that you give us the eyes to see, Lord, May it stir our hearts for that longing, Lord, to see your kingdom come in full. Uh, because, Lord, we know that when your kingdom comes, every bit of this violence and death and uh, racism and ethnocentrism and uh, instability, whatever else, Lord, we could go on and on. Your kingdom pushes that out. Um, and we thank you that that's the truth. And so we ask you to bring your kingdom in full and start with our hearts as individuals. Start with our community here at Door of Hope Northeast. Start with your churches um, across your globe, Lord. But we do ask that your kingdom would come in its full might and power soon, Jesus. Come reign. Come heal. Come put things right. Um, Lord, there's more to pray for. Uh, but this is this is a start, Lord. So we pray all these things desperately in Jesus' name. Amen. Wow. Okay. 
Um, well, we'll jump in, jump into the sermon for now. It's always, it's always hard um, to to make that jump, but but we'll do it. Um, I suppose to start, uh, I just want to start with a statement that I've already made, uh, I think, a couple of times in this series, uh, but that is that Christianity is weird. Christianity is weird. Do you know that? Are you cognizant of it if you're a Christian? If you're listening to this and you're a non-Christian, you already know that. You don't need me to exposit this for you. Um, But some of us that have been around the church a long time, um, it's good to have the reminder. Because a lot of things, multiple things dull us to this reality of the weirdness, the strangeness of what we believe. One one of those avenues that I think does this is sort of Christian pop culture, and um, what I mean is like whatever, however you'd quantify sort of the mainstream of of, Chris, of the Christian subculture, pop culture thing. Um, I think it dulls us to this reality. I think its job is to dull us to this reality. Um, and I I don't say all this is from some sort of highbrow like sneering thing. Um, I. There's plenty that's good about Christian pop culture as well. Um, what, yeah, this isn't that conversation. Uh, but what, what I mean is that Christian pop culture, what it often does is what it does is it serves to imitate mainstream pop culture. Usually, usually often with lesser kind of derivative versions of the movies or the bands or design or like whatever else is sort of popular and ascendant in mainstream kind of culture. Um, so there's there's the Christian version of this band. There's Christian, you know, uh, Bruno Mars. That's a that's a popular top forty guy, right? So we need the Christian Bruno Mars to sort of like, you know, if we're really going to do this thing, it's just it's kind of knockoff idea. And again, I'm not saying every popular Christian band or artist or whatever is that is a knockoff um, or whatever, but certainly many are. Um, and that's harmless as far as it goes. That's fine. Um, there are mainstream knockoffs of, of other bands. Like, that's not my point. It's, it, that's fine. But over time, what I'm afraid of is that this kind of thing, this Christian pop culture thing, what it subtly communicates both to us and to non-believers um, is that there are really no substantial differences between what Christians have believed, like for 2,000 years, two millennia, and whatever the mainstream believes uh, in present day. It's, it, it sands down the distinctives between us and the world. It trains us to think, ultimately, that when Jesus and his scriptures claim something that's out of step with what our neighbors believe or what our politicians believe or whatever, that, oh, that must be a misunderstanding because Christian pop culture has taught me we're the same. We're just, a, we're just another version. We're kind of a spin on what they think and do and believe. And uh, I just want to call us all to embrace the weird. Embrace the weird. Um, It's very possible that we do a big, a big, big, big disservice to ourselves and to those around us. Um, Even in our own church community, um, when when we don't allow ourselves to see, to feel, and to acknowledge the strangeness, the otherness, the foreignness, the ancientness of so much that's in the Bible. Remember, the Bible is a story about people from the other side of the world in a time that is unrecognizable to the time we live in today. 
um, situated in their culture and their experiences. It's not modern. It's not Western. It's not affluent. It's not white. It's not at home in American modern progressive politics or American modern conservative politics or whatever. Um, it is from a different time. It, now, it uniquely claims to transcend its own culture and every culture. It, 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 it claims to be applicable and authoritative uh, for all cultures and contextualizable to all cultures and all these amazing things. Um, but all that to say, uh, we need to feel the difference. We need to feel that this is not of us. <laughs> and for a couple of reasons, refusing to do that, it has disastrous effects. One, uh, it, it alienates those amongst us um, who are struggling with the difference that the, the scriptures and, and Christianity and Jesus brings. When we refuse to acknowledge it, it makes those of us who are really wrestling through this and doubting over this and having struggles over this feel alone. Feel like, well, no one else must see these things. No one else must feel these things. Maybe I'm just the weird one. Um, it also keeps those in our community uh, who maybe aren't wrestling with it or struggling with it so much. And that's fine to not be in a, series, a season of struggle and doubt. That's great. Um, but... But even more than that, it means that if we're not at least willing to acknowledge the difference and the weirdness, in all likelihood, we're probably not letting the full weight of the thing bear down on us and reveal its full meaning and scandalize us the way it's supposed to. Um, so there's, there's two, two ways, two angles from which it's just not good. And so today's text, we've already had it read for us, um, is going to force us to embrace the weird um, and or at least be confronted by the weird. And if it didn't hit you when the text was read uh, just a little bit ago, um, then it, it probably will as we get into it. So let's jump in. Um, we're going to take it in three parts. The first part focuses on the rare, here's another, another occurrence of this word we've, that's kept coming up for us, the rare authoritative teaching of Jesus. Verses 21 and 22, they say, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he, that's Jesus, entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. So a couple of things to note here. So it says they, they go into Capernaum. So Jesus has called these disciples, the previous story that Josh taught for us last week. Now he's traveling with a few of these guys, and they go into Capernaum. What is Capernaum? I don't expect any of us to be experts on kind of uh, Israel's geography here, but this was a city in Galilee in this region that Jesus has been, uh, has begun his ministry in. It's a city on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, north side of the lake, and it was a place actually of far more sort of activity and cultural diversity than Nazareth where Jesus grew up. And it was actually along these, these international roads that connected the Jezreel Valley and Damascus and Phoenicia. And so it was a place where travelers from all over could pass through. You're far more likely to meet this really diverse kind of culturally um, set of people. And so Jesus actually, it tells us he, he comes to minister here. But what we're going to see as we read the Gospels, so this actually kind of becomes Jesus's ministry home base, even his, his home uh, for the time of his public ministry, which is interesting. So they go into Capernaum, this kind of bustling area, certainly relative to where Jesus came from, and, and they go right into the heart 
of the social and religious life of the Jews living there. What do I mean by that? Well, it says they go into the synagogue on the Sabbath. Synagogue on the Sabbath. That's two markers there. He goes for God's place, at least in this region, on God's day. The, the Sabbath day, the day of rest, um, the most spiritually significant day of the week. Um, and a lot of us probably don't know, we've, you've probably heard the term synagogue, uh, but I know for many of us, we're probably like, I'm not really sure what happens there or what, how it functions. So we just need to talk about that for a second. Um, hopefully you know that for, for Jews, um, the temple was the absolute central focal point of religious life. Um, That was the hub of Judaism and the temple, starting with the time of Moses, there was the tabernacle, this tent system, and then eventually it was a brick and mortar, not literally brick and mortar, you know what I mean, uh, uh, permanently erected temple building. And uh, it was the center of worship for Israel. Inside the very central point was this room, the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God himself chose to make his dwelling. He stayed there. He kept his presence on earth there. It was the place, you know, uh, we talk about it a lot this way, where heaven and earth were overlapping. God's space and human space right there in the Holy of Holies in the temple, which only the high priest could go into on a particular day. Um, And it was protected with all this ritual and these procedures to keep it, you know, to keep it set apart. And that's where the sacrifices were made and on and on and on is the temple. There's only one temple. They didn't build multiple temples around because it was this one central place, place of, you know, where pilgrimage was be, pilgrimages would be made and so on and so forth. Um, but given that there was only one temple um, in the f- kind of further out regions, people where they couldn't regularly make it to the temple, or at least not as often as they'd like, they wanted a place where they could worship God, a place dedicated to worshiping him. That's where synagogues were born. They were these communal community spaces, uh, community centers. Um, They were small and they were set apart for worship, for scripture reading, public scripture reading, and exposition or sermons, um, for the study of the scriptures, and for prayer. Um, And in fact, the practices of the synagogue in the early first century had a deep impact on what the early church, uh, as, as the Jesus movement began to, to, to start. So you can see what they did is very much like what we do. Um, that was the synagogue. And so Jesus goes in and, and uh, the commentator Morna Hooker, she, she wrote that any man uh, who wished to do so, who was competent, could contribute an exposition at the invitation of the synagogue ruler, as Jesus does here. So Jesus probably went to get permission from whoever the kind of leader was of the synagogue and was granted it. And he was allowed to teach. So Jesus is going to teach at the synagogue. So this is significant. He's probably going to exposit an Old Testament passage. But Jesus doesn't tell us, or I'm sorry, Mark doesn't tell us what Jesus taught about here, does he? He says that he taught. Um, so we, we have to fill in the blanks a little bit. But the, the point of emphasis is not so much on the content. We could probably guess, uh, at least in the ballpark. But it was on the, the authority and the weight of his teaching. That's the point Mark wants to communicate here. And, and he, he gives us kind of a, a picture here of two kinds of authority. Do you see it? Um, 
So here's that word authority again. It's Mark slapping us in the face saying, all right, here you go, Portland, deal with it. It's been implicit now. We've been talking about it, but it's been implicit up to this point. Now he's even going to use the word here and talk about this is the foot Mark wants to get us off on uh, for the first chapter of this book. It's see the authority of Jesus. See what kind of special, unique authority he has. You're going to have to come face to face with it and deal with it, you 21st century Portlanders. But what he says is that there's, there's two kinds of authority here. It says they were astonished at Jesus' teaching, so they're blown away by it. They're set aback by it. For he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. So he's contrasting the authority that Jesus had and the authority that the scribes had. Their teachings were different, and the difference was the amount of authority they had. And don't read this as like the scribes were idiots or stupid or... You know, nobody respected the scribes because that's not what he's saying. I think what he's saying is there's two kinds of authority. There's derived authority and then there's sort of original intrinsic authority. Um, the scribes have the first kind. So he's, he's, he's talking about the, the, we need to think about the kind of authority that the scribes possessed. Um, this was a kind of authority that existed from them being able to competently look to the Hebrew scriptures and say, hey, this is what God has said. Maybe exposit it, elaborate on it. But they, their authority came from pointing to an authoritative source outside of themselves. That's what their authority was based on. To the degree that a scribe could accurately sort of read and unpack and share and communicate and apply what God had revealed in his word. They had this derived authority. Um, and honestly, it's important to note, to the degree that I have any authority whatsoever in your life listening to this, <laughs> like if you're uh, a part of our church here, um, it's this kind of authority. So the way that this works is that like you <laughs> voluntarily, willingly submit to the teaching and discipling of our church, whether it's the men and women who teach and disciple you, uh, in a personal context or community group or our teachings on Sundays or just the idea of our, our eldership team, kind of leaders of this church, um, in, to the degree that you believe us to be faithfully and accurately pointing to the teachings of the scriptures, to Jesus, the apostles, all that they commanded, so on and so forth. God forbid that I ever start claiming some kind of intrinsic authority, be it teaching or otherwise, that is not derived from the authority of simply pointing to and calling us to the king and his word. Like that is, the, that is it. Um, and if, if I begin to depart from the truth that has been deposited <laughs> by God and his word, uh, you need to leave, frankly. Um, because if I start giving you, well, here's my musings, here's my thing, here's what I think, oh, here's why what I say is actually better than what Jesus says, that is ridiculous. I'm not some sage. I don't have any divine secret knowledge. And if I claim that I do, you need to run, <laughs> frankly. But hopefully, most churches, I don't know if it's the case or not, hopefully most churches, they are making sincere, genuine, and trustworthy effort to point those under their care to the one who is authoritative intrinsically. And thus we have a derived authority, if that makes sense. Um, many leaders crave the kind of authority that Jesus alone has, um, but we can't handle it. 
We're not designed to carry that kind of authority. It's not good for us. We'll end up doing nothing but harm with it. Um, this is the kind that's appropriate for people. <laughs> so what's the opposite? So, okay, the kind of intrinsic authority, the internal authority that Jesus has, it's original authority. It's not derived from somewhere else. It's internal and intrinsic to who he is. And it's the kind, frankly, what we see here is that the, the, the believer or the, the people of Capernaum, of the synagogue, they know it when they see it. They hear in Jesus' voice, they hear in his exposition, whatever it was, oh my goodness, this is not like our teachers who are pointing to the other thing. Tim Keller says, it's, he, he does the play on the word with the word authority with author. It's as if the author of it all, the author of the scriptures, the author of creation, God himself is speaking. That was the sensation they got when they heard the words of Jesus. And this is very much, this idea is very much why I thought it was super important for our new church community. We just had our, you know, one year anniversary a few weeks ago um, to in these early days to take a significant amount of time to teach through a gospel that we could day in and day out as a community repeatedly come face to face with the words and the actions and the teachings of the person of Jesus and see what work it might do in us. Now, that is not to denigrate the rest of the scriptures. I mean, it's all breathed out by God, of course, but there is something about just spending time with the portraits of Jesus himself that we find in the Gospels. I think is really, really important and powerful for grounding us as a community. And to see, like, for all of us, do you hear, do you recognize, do you see that special divine stamp on this man? Do you, do you believe he is who he says he is? I believe that the more that people spend time with him and his word and just look at him, the more likely it is that they're going to have that dawning realization. Yes, this man's worth giving everything to because he's not just a man. He's the God man. He is who he claimed to be. He is who Mark claims he is. So that's what we're doing. He has the authority of the author himself. Not just the interpreter, you could say. So that's the first thing that gets established. But there's a second twin point here that's really important. And that's that Mark establishes the rare authoritative spiritual power of Jesus. We've got the teaching authority. Now we've got the spiritual power. It says, immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. So this is a disturbing scene. I mean, I, I, I don't know how all of us would react. Maybe it will happen sometime. I'm not sure. Uh, if we were having a worship gathering and someone with a demon essentially came in, and started yelling and making a commotion. This is a, you're, you're meant, you're, the hair is meant to raise up on the back of your neck a little bit when you hear this story. Um, but, but more than that, um, this, is the, this is the biggest moment in this text where I think the weirdness of what we believe comes to the fore. Uh, this phrase, unclean spirit, it's one of the ways that they talk about uh, using another term, demons. Sometimes they're called unclean spirits, sometimes they're called demons, but that is what we're dealing with here the demonic, 
personal spiritual evil uh, coming and interacting, having a dialogue with Jesus here. And this idea that the de- of, of demons existing and, and, and working and doing this, this is a big, 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 big sticking point for many of us modern Westerners. It's weird. It's uncomfortable. Maybe it's kind of scary. Maybe for some of us it's just silly and kind of stupid sounding. And it, that's for multiple reasons. I want to unpack some of them. One uh, that I think is really important to note is that is for many of us, we assume that it's saying things that it isn't. We straw man the Bible, so to speak. So what I mean by that is like, what comes to your head when you picture the devil, Satan, or demons? Are they like red lizard man people or like a horned goat dude? (laughs) Or like, I don't know, the Will Ferrell SNL sketch where he plays Satan, like trying to give Garth Brooks like the most epic riffs of all time in exchange for his soul. Great sketch, by the way. Um, But what what pops in your head? And uh, like, honestly, it's very possible that whatever weirdness you're thinking like oh that's so silly like a dude with a tail and horns comes from like medieval art or pop culture um, rather than the biblical descriptions because we basically get no physical descriptions of of demons in in the bible so all this stuff it's fine it's fine for people to imagine and stuff but whenever that becomes a stumbling block to like oh this is clearly silly we have to stop with so many things in the Bible and go, well, is that actually what the Bible's teaching or is that just something that's been culturally conditioned and kind of stamped onto uh, our assumptions about what the Bible is saying? So don't, don't picture lizard man here. <laughs> that's not what it claims. It's not what it claims. In fact, it gives no physical description, uh, but it nonetheless is personal. So it's, 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 a, it's, it's um, a person in the sense that he has a will and can speak and these kinds of things, but it's, it's a, a spiritual being who, uh, like sinful humans, are in rebellion against God, but is self-consciously opposed to God and his kingdom rule. So spiritually, spiritual created beings re- who've rebelled against God, but who can possess the bodies of the people that God's created, the humans that God's created. Um, so, number one, don't assume it's saying something it isn't. That's big. Number two... We often assume that like modern science has disproven the idea of, say, a demon. And I would just say uh, it hasn't. (laughs) Um, Modern science is valuable. Modern science is something Christians should celebrate and we should celebrate the advances of, uh, certainly when they're ethical advances. Um, But uh, science can only deal, it essentially can only deal with description, description of the physical. All of its tools are for dealing with the physical, the imminent, the material. And if claims are made about something that transcends the physical, science has no way to even try to address or, uh, or experience or describe or measure any of that. It's a, it's a realm that's utterly cut off to the tools of science. And that's important to remember. Now, we could talk about other ways. Well, then, how do you validate? How do you explore? Are these claims real or false? That's a conversation for another day. But the answer is not. Uh, modern scientific tools to determine if personal spiritual evil exists. Um, Another version of this thing is that like we assume for many of us that what the Bible calls demonic oppression is really just like a heightened mental health issue or something similar. Um, But again, that's really not fair uh, to how the Bible presents it. Like the Bible knows sickness and, and the Bible knows depression and anxiety and the Bible knows despair and the Bible knows 
um, all kinds of things that we would broadly put under the category of, of like significant mental health issues. Um, and it knows that these things are not always the cause of demons. <laughs> the Bible does not put forward the idea that there's a demon under every rock or behind every hardship, or every struggle or every suffering. Um, they can overlap, but they're ultimately fundamentally distinct ideas. Um, that's important to remember. At the end of the day, if you're already open to the idea of an uncreated, sort of all-powerful person who is spirit, so that's God, um, then it shouldn't be too difficult to make the leap to, to believing in lesser created spiritual beings, um, even ones that are in rebellion against God, like Satan and the demons. So, um, maybe to sum this up, and this is a, a good way to think about this, I think, um, we can very easily let Western affluent sort of modernist or postmodernist ideas uh, to use a term that's really in vogue and popular right now, but I think it's the right term for this, to let these ideas colonize our theology. Um, the fact is that so many places in the world um, th today and throughout history have taken as a basic fact the existence of spiritual forces and powers beyond the physical, and many people have experienced these things. Um, the fact that you and I uh, struggle with it so much says a lot about the degree to which the beliefs and values of our super specific, very recent culture has influenced us. Um, so we just, we just have to deal with that. And that's also probably a conversation for another day, but we need to just acknowledge it right now. Um, that there's, there's a bit of, <laughs> a, bit of a, a narrow sort of cultural colonization that can impact, impact our theology in this area and in many, many, many others. Um, so keep that in the back of your mind. Maybe one final thing I'd say about these demons is that although uh, for most of us, I'm assuming we have not had a whole lot of encounter or experience with something like this, um, it really is possible that another thing we've been talking about, like the rise of this kind of pop pagan spirituality, this becoming popular, things like witchcraft and even uh, polytheism in various forms is sort of becoming trendy, um, is probably going to make belief in something like this story less scandalous and weird, but also uh, it's going to make the experienced reality for maybe us and many of our neighbors probably more likely as people begin to give themselves over to spiritual forces that they don't understand, um, it's very likely that, that people that we love are gonna experience a, a spiritual oppression and overt spiritual warfare in ways that um, they haven't before. Um, that would be tragic were that to happen. I kind of suspect it, but uh, we'll see. And we'll trust Jesus through it. So that's a long sidebar on, on demons, but uh, we have to deal with it. <laughs> we have to deal with it because the Bible asks us to. Um, but we, we see something else really interesting here is that these demons, um, that are this unclean spirit, it knows Jesus's identity and his power, uh, but that that's not the same thing as saving faith. Uh, this is a point that, that James makes as well very powerfully in his letter, but they call him the Holy One of God who has the power even to destroy them so they know something about his status, perhaps as the son of God, and much of what that entails. They know that there's power there. Um, but they're, clear, they're, not, 
they're not saved. Uh, it is possible to know all kinds of facts about Jesus and not know him. Not know him. And to not trust him and to, and to not uh, receive the gift of his saving grace. And that's an idea that periodically stirs up fear in me. As someone, you know, especially someone who's been to seminary, you know, loaded up on facts about God. But do I know him? Do I seek him? Do I trust him? It's a very valuable question to ask. Even in the next section, Mark is going to mention that the people are amazed by this encounter that Jesus has. But even that's not the same as genuine belief either. Curiosity and amazement are not the same thing as trust. Now, I used to have this idea, and maybe you do, I don't know, or maybe you have, but that I, I had this idea, it was very naive, but I had it for a long time, that the only reason someone could possibly reject Jesus uh, was a lack of evidence. Like, my idea was like, deep down, look, the, what the gospel puts forward, it's so beautiful and it's so obviously awesome that you know, people might think it's a fairy tale. They might think it's unproven. They might think there's no good reason to believe it or whatever. But the only reason people would reject Jesus was lack of evidence. Everyone wants the gospel and Jesus to be real. If they could just be convinced of the facts, then they would follow. That is not how the Bible talks about it. Even in these stories, we've just talked about the demon, but how many people encounter Jesus in all his beauty and his wisdom and his teaching and his love and his mercy and his grace, and they hate him, or they want to kill him, or they do kill him. Um, people will come face to face with Jesus and hate him, and it's the same will be true, I think, when he returns to reign at his second coming as king. There will be people who suddenly realize that this Jesus that they had heard about is who he claimed to be. But they're not going to respond with worship. They're going to respond with shaking their fists, believing this is bad news for the world. Still that they know better. Still that the kingdoms they're trying to construct are the ones that deserve to be in existence and not his. And they'll want nothing to do with them. And Jesus will be forced against their own good, against their ultimate good, to give them what they want which is separation from him. We call this hell. We could say a lot more about that. But that's the logic of hell. Those who look at God and say, I don't want it. And he says, your will be done. In the words of C.S. Lewis. It's tragic. It's disturbing. Uh, but it's real. Facts about Jesus is not the same thing as faith in Jesus. Got to remember that. Another thing we see here is that Jesus is powerful, that his kingdom does and will reign over the kingdom of Satan. Like Jesus, like he, he just authoritatively deals with this monstrous, evil, unclean spirit instantly. His words are be silent and come out of him. Jesus isn't playing a game. Note that he doesn't have to do some mechanistic ritual incantation to deal with this. He just commands simply and the demon obeys. Um, uh, one commentator pointed out that the Greek word uh, phimothetai for be silent is better translated as be muzzled or like in colloquial English, shut up. Jesus is essentially saying forcefully like shut up and get out. 
that's how Jesus doesn't play. He doesn't dance. He does. He's not cute with this unclean spirit. He just decisively, authoritatively deals with it. And this is the proof that his kingdom is authoritative to deal with whatever counter kingdoms, even these scary, bizarre, weird spiritual ones throw at him. He's powerful over them. But it's not just his power. And this is a really important kind of final point on this. It's that Jesus is merciful. Because this is not just a story about Jesus powerfully dealing with a demon. It's a story of Jesus showing mercy and healing and peace to the spiritually oppressed. The man that was oppressed by this demon is given freedom. I love what the commentator Ben Witherington says here. He says, what one notice, what one notices about Jesus's behavior is that he is never worried about becoming unclean or sick or fraternizing by fraternizing or touching the spiritually or physically or morally unclean. Never. Jesus is not worried about being corrupted himself. He's so confident in who he is and in his relationship with his father that he can just lean into those who are unclean, those who are sinful, those who are sick, those who are dying, those who are antagonistic even without fear. Um, And this is why Jesus' authority is good news. As we've said multiple times in the last few weeks, like human authority is ugly so often of the time. Human authority figures in our lives can be abusive. They can be intimidating. They can be harmful. And even when they're healthy and good and at their best, they're still flawed. They're still a mixture of sin and sanctification and all these things, um, as all people are. But Jesus wields his authority with his perfect character, with his just full of love and truth and grace and mercy and goodness and all of those fruits uh, that he produces in us, the fruit of the Spirit. He has them all perfectly so. So for Jesus to possess this authority is actually the best news in the world because he's the only one fit to wield it and it means wherever he wields it, goodness will flow. That is an encouragement. And that is what this man who was oppressed by this demonic spirit experienced that day. The liberation that Jesus sought to bring to him. That's good news. That's good news. And that's good news that's on offer to you and to me as well. And to our neighbors. And so we conclude here. In the same way the passage does. It says, after this crazy incident, Jesus teaches, he's authoritative, and then this disturbing scene of this unclean spirit coming in and Jesus casting it out and freeing this man says the word goes out. Verse 27, they were all amazed that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. So they're summarizing. That's the story. That's the lesson we're meant to take. Verse 28, and at once his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. So this is Jesus's kind of first public act of wonder, (laughs) his first miracle effectively. And immediately word goes out. And people were amazed. They were intrigued. They were startled. They were thrown off. They were, whoa. But again, that's not the same thing as saving faith. But they sensed the authority in his teaching and they witnessed it in his actions, in his dealing with the Spirit. And they had to tell about it. And they're thinking, what does this mean? And to conclude, I would just say that you and I, We are not in the position of these people that witnessed kind of this crazy scene that fateful day. Um, 
this was not just you know <laughs> you know a, a little light teaching and a you know a little Saturday morning exorcism. Uh, it's, wow, that's interesting, crazy. Um, they in real time had to start dealing with whoa, what in the world does this mean? But we actually sit with the whole gospel and the rest of the New Testament uh, in our hands, and we know that Jesus's unique authority isn't just. It's not just there to be weird or even to be amazing, to be this curiosity or this weird thing uh, from history. We know that this same Jesus says later that he's, he, he came to offer life and life abundantly to everyone. And, and not just life abundantly in the here and now, but life eternal, life that transcends death. Actually a resurrection, a genuine bodily resurrection from the dead that death does not have the last say, that life will go on forever with him and that it will be good, <laughs> that it will be full of goodness and abundance. We, we now have the privilege of knowing that Jesus wasn't just this puzzling authoritative teacher that showed up one day, and he wasn't just a master exorcist who could command with a simple phrase, but he was the one who would take all that power and all that authority and lay it down willingly would set it down to embrace weakness, to embrace slavery, to embrace death in your place and in mine and in your neighbor's place and their neighbor's place and the place of every single person, regardless of who they are or what they're into or whatever else, to offer salvation, a place in his family, a place in his kingdom, a place in his project of restoring the world and putting everything right. And a seat at the table that great day when he returns to bring his kingdom to bear in full in this world, reigning as king. That day when all the sickness is done, all the spiritual oppression is done, all the confusion is done, all these murders and hate crimes, whatever else, are done because his kingdom is here. That's the day we long for. That's the day he has promised. That's the day that is coming. That's the day he invites us into. And so this passage today, I think if it does anything, it asks us the question once over, a question it's going to ask us again and again as we keep going through Mark. Who do you say that this Jesus is? Will you believe? Do you hear it? When you hear this Jesus, when you look at him, do you see the authority? And is it exciting? I hope that it is. And if you're not sure, I open up and read. Keep reading through Mark. Read the other Gospels. Keep going through the New Testament. Go back to the Old Testament. Get to know who is this God. Who does he claim to be? And see if he doesn't show up and reveal himself to you. And if it's kind of old news, you've been walking with Jesus for a while, do it anyway. And ask prayerfully with, for fresh eyes to see, fresh ears to hear. And see if he doesn't give those to you. So... That's it for today. I am personally very excited uh, to only record one more video sermon next week. Uh, and we'll talk about next week is Palm Sunday. We'll talk about kind of some, some unique stuff we're going to do for Holy Week and uh, Good Friday and Easter. Um, so I'm excited about all that. But in the meantime, I say goodbye. I love you all. And uh, let's keep following Jesus together. Amen. Amen. <laughs>